Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. Failure is something most of us would rather stay away from, especially when our mental health is suffering. If we already feel like failures, like we can do nothing right in life and everything sucks, why embrace that? Andrew Thorpe King is the author of Failure Rules, the five rules of failure for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics. In the book, Andrew explains that failure purifies, that we must burn to rise, and most importantly, we are not our failures. Andrew went through personal turmoil and yes, failure, to get to a place where he thinks about it as a teaching tool for living a better life. Through his history in punk and hardcore, owning Thorpe Records and Sailor's Grave Records, the energy and inspiration in the music kept him afloat. But with so many obstacles along the way, failure was inevitable. Andrew would be the first to admit his failures, but the last to be defined by them. My name is Andrew Thorpe King, the owner and founder of Thorpe Records, longstanding hardcore metal label. Also, Sailor's Grave Records is another label of mine, more focuses on the subgenres of oi, psychobilly, street punk, hardcore, punk rock, metal, all of that has always been the soundtrack of my life. Going back to seventh, eighth grade when I first was given a cassette tape that uh, had Murphy's Law self-titled album on it, and then I heard Black Flag, and then I heard Minor Threat. The classic rock stuff that I was into, all that stuff just really just receded to the background because the energy, the angst, the passion, the creativity, and even like the vitality of punk rock just gripped me to the core. And that has not left me to this day, being 49 years old. I mean, I remember getting the first Madball 7-inch. I was like 15 years old. And to think back then that I ended up working with them, you know, years and years later and and just the whole journey of that has just been integral to who I am. And that folds in, you know, in terms of the intersection of punk rock and hardcore and mental health and the music being a bomb and an antidote for dealing with the struggles and the strife and the chaos that is inherent with life on earth. My book, Failure Rules, in that book really catalogs my journey as an entrepreneur and a creative, particularly uh, throughout my 20s, and my 30s, stumbling through a number of different pursuits, whether it's owning a fitness center 
running the record labels, being a financial planner, doing professional bodybuilding, writing a spy novel, all kinds of stuff I did. And so many obstacles, so many um, failures, so many uh, just twists and turns and almost near catastrophic storms that came my way. And the thing that really buoyed me throughout that, that really helped me stave off that depression, helped me stave off the abyss that many times I felt my feet were steeped in. It was music. Yeah, it was music. It gave me that energy. The right song, the right lyrics at the right time really did give me that strength and some deep emotional um, introspection and spirituality is potent. The concept of failure, it's difficult, I think, for folks with mental health issues because, of course, especially depression, there's always this feeling of, you know, I'm a failure. Mm. I've, I've let my family down. I've let myself down. I can't do anything in my life. I'm going to be lonely and hopeless and helpless forever. And I've failed. And so your whole book is about how failure can be embraced and how it can be a positive thing. So through the lens of a person with a severe mental health condition, how does that look? You're writing from a different perspective. You're writing from a person that's had a lot of you know personal strife and failures and how you turned that around and made it a strength. Yeah. One of the things that might speak to that is failure rule number five. So I have a number of rules, obviously, in about these five rules. And they're not like prescriptive. Do this and you will get this result. They're not like rigid like there are more mindset guidelines to be aware of as you do difficult things or, or live life as an authentic person, knowing you're going to encounter failures and how to leverage them, metabolize them, and optimize them. Failure rule number five is you are not your failures. I think that's very, very important for people with, who are struggling with mental health issues is to do their best to detach their identity from the failure events in their life. They are just events, difficult to do, but if you can step out the emotional shrapnel of a failure event that might make you feel as if you are the embodiment of that event, and you are the failure, and there's no way out, and this stain will live on you forever, if you can step outside of that and be a third-party observer of the events in your life and just be curious on how you might be able to use them to uh, grow, to stretch, to become multidimensional, to reinvent, I think that's a very important message that is not said a lot because people do judge us. People do perceive us based on the things that either happen to us uh, without our consent or the things that happen to us sometimes even by dereliction of our own decision-making, you can escape out of that by detaching from the optics of those failures. In the book, you come to a realization about how these things in your life that were super painful and seemed like could be life-ending in some ways could be taken and used as a way to build yourself back up. And I'm wondering about that moment of realization, maybe you had more than one, but do you remember how that felt? Yeah. So it is a mix, right? I mean, the tagline of the book is after it sucks, failure rules, because it still sucks, man. You're still in the midst of chaos. It's hard to see over the horizon that you can get through or over or around certain events in your life. I mean, for me, I mean, just quick off the top of my head, we're talking about like going through bankruptcy. We're talking about a painful marital divorce with three children involved. We're talking about abandonment of a home. We're talking about being on food stamps twice. We're talking about being investigated by the feds, multiple business failures and business divorces, and just tumult and chaos for years and years and years and years and years. Like every time I got some footing, I was three months away from the next catastrophe or mini catastrophe. And it wasn't really to my forties that I had a stretch of really strong upward flourishing. But in my twenties and thirties experiencing all that, like, man, there was times of real hopelessness. There was times where I was really on the verge of slipping into, you know, potential alcoholism, potential depression, potential, certainly experienced feelings of, of depression, all kinds of virtual mentors that literally were 
the ones that from their work, whether it be music, whether it be writing or whatever it is, uh, their ideas help me transcend out of those spaces and think of my life in a different way. And so I think the importance of that can't be understated. And obviously music is a key channel for that. You listen to a Hatebreed song, it's like Tony Robbins on steroids with guitars. This is for the kids who have nowhere to turn. Oh, I have nothing to live for. You think you have it the will to possess. You have to search within yourself. All the work that you've done. In- you can listen to a Motorhead song and just the grit of Lemmy thinking about the concept of born to lose, live to win. Like, yeah, we're born to lose. We are prone for being failures, but you can choose to live to win. It seems like it's just rock and roll or entertainment or what have you, but it's not. I mean, if you're digesting music properly, man, it can have a powerful effect on the trajectory of your life. When did that switch go off for you where you realized that you could turn this around and you could use all these failures or failings? Well, I had already kind of been doing it, but then it aggregated to a inflection point around the end of 2013 where I was taking this beach walk and I was thinking through all of this, like how did I still have enthusiasm? How was I not depressed when I should have been? How did I keep going? And for me, it was, was that enthusiasm. I thought of the Winston Churchill quote that success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And that enthusiasm was like a, an endorphin of the spirit through the pain of difficulty. And that was really when I was convicted on that beach walk, like I'm writing a book of the value of failure. And it's going to include all the inputs and sources and inspirations that help me get through all these things and, you know, hopefully can benefit others. Did you look to the punk and hardcore community when you were struggling? Did you find yourself veering back towards that support system? Um, That's a good question. I don't know that it was specifically people in the punk and hardcore community in terms of an in-person relationship, but absolutely it was punk and hardcore music. The music was always there for me. You mentioned how you were exposed to punk rock back when you were quite young and someone handed you a tape with Murphy's Law and we all have that story of someone handing us a tape, especially of our generation. Where did it go from there? Like, was it a quick introduction to the scene? You started working with bands, putting out records? It was pretty quick that like that became the music that I identified with. It was just into punk and hardcore. Really embraced straight edge at the time. My threat to today. And was straight edge up until I was 27. The straight edge thing, man, and that was 100% counterculture in, you know, in high school and college. So there's the concept in the book about this idea of a failure prepper. Mm. You would never think that you'd want to be a prepper for failure, that it's going to always be coming, that you're always bracing for it. And how do you deal with it? I think we have this expectation that society sets for us that we're supposed to be chasing after linear lives and that we actually can expect to have linear lives. But most people I know don't have that. They have zigzags in their life. They're up and down. They're, they're circuitous ways of maybe finding success. And even them, it might only be fleeting and then they fall back down and they have to get back up. And so this is this constant journey where obviously the self-evident failure rule is to try to avoid it, of course, right? This isn't like failure porn. I'm not saying you should love failure, but it doesn't matter. Like, no, try to avoid failure, right? Be smart, be strategic, plan. Particularly if you're going down unorthodox career paths or life paths, that it's going to be something that might visit you with more frequency. And so it's the idea of premeditatively thinking about how you're going to handle it, how you're going to embrace it. Case in point, what we just talked about, you are not your failures. I had to learn that 
by going through failure events and believing that I was my failures. And it took me a while to understand that I didn't have to believe that. And that the best way through it was to realize I didn't have to believe that. If you're already learning about that idea and setting that mindset inside you ahead of time, it's going to be more instinctive to fall back on that amidst the emotionality of a failure event. So that's what I mean by prepping. And this book is kind of intended to be a bit of a field manual for that. Have you heard back from folks who have been dealing with personal struggles and talked to you about some of the concepts that worked, didn't work? Folks that potentially are dealing with mental health conditions or huge strife in their lives that have come back to you and given you some feedback? Yeah, for sure. Uh, one that comes to mind, there was uh, somebody who follows me on Instagram who bought the book and um, wrote to me and said that uh, he had just gone through a divorce. He had lost his job of many years. He was really, really in a bad place. And after reading the book, he was able to you know, strengthen his mind and kind of get out of the proverbial gutter within his old soul and uh, ended up getting a job, making more money, working out again, taking care of his body and getting his finances in order and releasing himself from the bitterness of the divorce and all of those type of things. And, you know, he credited, you know, the stories in the book as helping him. So that was really cool. I mean, that's why I wrote the book so that that could be something that helps people. And again, this is not like some book that has any step-by-step prescriptive way of dealing with it. Like it's, it's reflect self-help. Book. Yeah. It's, it's reflective. <laughs> it's raw. It's real. There's no clear answers on everything, right? Like this isn't like, I have all the answers. Here you go. I'm a guru. This is like, look, I've been on this discovery process. I think I've learned some things. I might even change my mind later. But right now, this is some stuff that I think I can synthesize together and make some sense and I think might help some people on their journey. And coping mechanisms as well that we use to deal with these things, some healthy, some not healthy. Mm -hmm. What kind of coping mechanisms were you using to come out the other end and look at how your life was going to be? going forward. There's healthy ones and there's unhealthy ones, right? So the healthy ones would be reading music, lots of physical exercise. I've always been a gym rat. So that has always calibrated me. Strong body, strong mind helps to balance the emotions. There's obviously tons of science on that. So that has always been a big part, but I absolutely flirted with some, some dangerous habits too. I mean, I do love to drink. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm really, I enjoy alcohol a lot. Um, But during those times, like there were some times where I went into excess and it was to bury the pain for sure. I never slipped into an abyss with that or developed it into like a long-term abuse of the substance, but there were certainly times. And also just, you know, particularly going through divorce and all of that, there were times where just like the approximate feeling of artificial attention that you can get from just going to a strip club. Like, you know, that was another thing that, uh, you know, I flirted with that could have really gone off the rails, right? So I think what probably stopped me from that was the balance with the, with the healthy practices that pulled me away from those from those things becoming really ripping. I'm certainly not perfect in any of those regards. None of us are, but the best way sometimes to avoid unhealthy habits isn't to just vow to stop them, but it's just to slowly start building in healthy habits that can over time overcrowd. Let's run through the different concepts in the book. You mentioned there's five arms or pillars to this idea of failure rules without giving the book away. (laughs) Failure rule number one is failure purifies. It's the idea that the phoenix must burn to emerge. But when we go through certain failure events, if we're able to kind of step back and, and observe them objectively as if they're not even happening to us and pretend that we're somebody else witnessing this, we could oftentimes see that they might be burning off excess waste that we needed to get rid of, old thinking that needed to die so that new thinking can flourish, old foundations that needed to be crumbled so that new ones can be built. 
old identities that needed to be shattered so that new ones could be explored. And that way, failure really can be a purifier and can really mold us uh, into our next version of ourselves that we didn't even know we needed to become. But again, it takes our appropriation of the event to see that, to act on that, and to move into that. So that's the idea of failure rule number one. There's tons of examples and case studies in the book to kind of bolster that concept. Failure rule number two is nothing is safe, which really comes from a quote from Lemmy Kilmister of Motorhead. The Motorhead show was canceled after the terrorist attack in the UK, the Ariana Grande show, and uh, he was being interviewed by Loudwire. And they're like, hey, Lemmy, you know, if the uh, authorities and the venue would have let you play, would have you played? He's like, yeah, nothing is safe. And he kind of goes on a little rant on how, like, why are we all so attached to this idea of safety and think that we're like deserved to live in a safe world? And the concept really is. Yeah, nothing is safe. Even the things you think are safe are, are not safe. And that might sound scary. That might sound unstable. But uh, we live in a wabi-sabi world. Wabi-sabi, the Japanese term for beauty of imperfection. And we need to embrace it because that's really where the contours of beauty and excitement and adventure are found in life. And certainly we want to live our life in a way where we can try to be as safe as possible. But there are some things that we need to chase after sometimes that are inherently more unsafe than other things. And the value of those pursuits are higher than safety sometimes. The idea of safety first needs to be really questioned and weighed against competing priorities. So it's exploring that as a concept, kind of an antidote against finding yourself at a point in life where you're riddled with regret because you were afraid to go after certain things because you might fail or because they might be unsafe. Uh, and then you regret never trying. Failure rule number three is money is spiritual. This is kind of counterintuitive idea that while money is an agnostic tool, it's not inherently good or evil, right? It's depending on the user. It has the potential, I believe, to really be like a spiritual tool. If you avoid the edge territories, the failure territories of envy and greed, and you're able to see money as a thank you note where it really is, you know, when we place value on something, we're measuring our thankfulness and money is a thank you note. And there's tons of examples of the power of money to really build relationships, strength relationships, acknowledge value in other people, be rewarded with money sometimes as a symbol of the value you bring to other people and services or products or what have you. And that if money can be utilized in that way, it has lots of power to lift people out of poverty, to help overcome failure. Of course, it's not always used that way. It's often in the yeah. failure way, which is why some people just hate money or they demonize the wealthy because for being greedy, or they might look down upon uh, those who are envious as being off the mark. So this is kind of a, a way to crowd those two territories out and try to think of money a little differently. Number four is not quite as intuitive from the title, but it's build your thing one and thing two dependency. So thing one and thing two is not some weird cat in the hat thing. Thing one is really, it's what I call an enabler pursuit. So it's something in your life that gives you a bit of stability and some scaffolding in your life that you can use as you go after this more unsafe thing to aspirational North Star dream. And so the obvious example of that is like bang down a nine to five and, and uh, you know, pursue your side hustle slowly in your off hours. But I go through some creative ways that this thing one and thing two dependency has really circuitously led people to their aspirational dreams, right? So a music example would be Chris Wren from Bridge Nine Records. He famously, he had this thing one enabler pursuit where to quicken his way towards getting Bridge Nine off the ground, he didn't just work a day job and save money. He started another entrepreneurial pursuit with more certainty and more profit, which was the Yankee Suck merchandise, sold a ton of that, 
took that money, which some could argue was you know good money going after bad, right? But took that money and uh, underwrote the first 16 or 17 Bridge Nine records to get it off the ground. So it's that type of creative way of bringing your dreams into existence by having some sort of creative enabler pursuit or set of structure in your life to allow you to go after that big dream, which is usually more unsafe. Yeah, and circling back to the rule number five, kind of to tie it up. Yeah, that's the you are not your failures. I think between that and failure rule number one, failure purifies. Those two, the other ones are all important, but like from a book bookend standpoint, failure purifies, you get to the end of the book, the conclusion is, hey, you're not your failures. You don't have to identify with these. You can find a way to use these to your benefit, right? First, realize they can help you, they can purify you, that you are not these events. You, know, you can decouple your identity from them. It's not easy. It really sounds like it's not the kind of thing you can just pick up the book and materialize this attitude or this ethos. And I'm thinking about myself, you know, going through depressive episodes with bipolar and even manic episodes on the high end and getting all excited yeah, and yeah. wanting to do it all at once. Yeah. It would be very difficult for me to follow all that stuff and to, it would take time, obviously. And like, you're not saying you read the book and you're ready to go. Yeah. Since, you know, you're the person that came up with this concept and these different rules. What advice would you give to someone who's struggling with clinical depression or, mm. or is maybe even having trouble getting out of bed in the morning and how do they apply that to their life? Yeah, I mean, I think it is finding whatever is the most meaningful action-oriented nugget that can help you right in that moment, right? Like we live moment to moment in some ways if we're attentive to our spirits. And, you know, I think it's also like realizing that you are not your feelings, just like you're not your failures. Feelings are important. We should pay attention to them. We should vet them. We should value them, but we don't always have to agree with them. <laughs> and we always don't, don't have to like set our actions based on our feelings, right? Thought comes into your head doesn't mean it's necessarily your thought. It comes into your head for you to evaluate, decide whether you want to own it or not, and whether you want to act on it. We can be the judge of our own thoughts. It's pretty simple, like mood follows action. So I really do believe like if you can find one small action that goes against how you feel in a time where you're feeling really badly, find that one small action. It could be just something very, very tiny that that can kind of help build some momentum to keep you going. I think of one example I have in the book of Joshua Coburn, who's uh, you know actually like a motivational speaker, old hardcore punk guy, uh, lived in the Midwest, tattooed, pierced, all that, and was tattooed heavily and pierced heavily in Iowa in like the 90s, where he was really viewed at that time in that place as an absolute outcast and freak and was really tortured pretty well from society and judgment by that. And there was a time he writes about where he um, started crying one morning because he was out of milk and needed milk for his cereal. And it wasn't because he loved milk so much because he was just so exhausted of judgment and did not even want to go to the grocery store to buy milk and have people stare at him for expressing his authentic self the way he did in his appearance. And he was about to pen a suicide note and kill himself. Something rumbled within his spirit that just resisted. You know, there's a struggle within him. And he ended up resisting the, the suicide urge. And instead said to himself, if I could take responsibility for ending my life, why can't I take responsibility for living my life? And it was like just that one flip, like words matter, the things you say to yourself matter. And if you can have enough inputs in your life where you're building this reservoir of wisdom within you from external sources, you never know when it might bubble up in the right time to help you in that right moment where you really needed it to keep moving. This concept of failure rules has become synonymous with you and your writing and your creativity. And I'm wondering if you remember having an inkling of this 
concept or, or feeling inside of you when you're going to the punk shows when you first started getting in the mosh pit and the straight edge mm. hardcore bands and all that, that that whole scene do you go back and look at it and say oh yeah well that was maybe looking towards what i'm doing now i do yeah actually i mean even when i first started my labels i knew i wanted to write books at some point i didn't know it would be failure rules but it took years of experiences to build up you know i might end up doing something like that someday i saw myself potentially going in that direction years ago it just took decades to come to fruition and some failure along the way. Yes, of course, right. Yeah, Everybody wants to write about their successes. I write 480 pages about failure, but <laughs> it might be more valuable. You made up all these rules Lay out a plan for me Like a one-way road A formula to society Carved in stone That was my conversation with Andrew Thorpe King, author of Failure Rules, andrewthorpeking.com. For more episodes of Screen Therapy, go to screentherapyhq.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Big news, the Screen Therapy book is available now. Screen Therapy, a punk journey through mental health, tells my story and the stories of others who use punk as a catalyst for mental health. Like this podcast, it links the community-minded punk scene with the mental wellness of the punks who belong to it. To order the book, go to ScreenTherapyHQ.com. For merch, check out the newly opened store at ScreenTherapyHQ.com store. And for even more designs, check out Screen Therapy on TeePublic. Okay, enough promoting. It's time for some thanking. Thank you for listening to Screen Therapy. Doing this podcast and talking to folks about punk rock and mental health has been a crucial part of my own mental stability, and it means so much to me that you're out there listening. Screen Therapy is created in the Cathet region of coastal British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Klohomin Nation. Contact me at ScreenTherapyHQ.com or email me at ScreenTherapyPodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about punk rock and mental health. Until next time, take care and be well. Yeah,